Hey, good morning. You know, you, you may or may not know the name of Kenny Leverich. Uh, Kenny is a, a repeat CrossFit Games competitor, all-around freak athlete who has a crazy combination of strength and speed and gymnastic skill. Basically, he's one of the best functional fitness athletes of our time. Four years ago, a company named Thrillist recruited him for a viral prank that drew a crowd. Hollywood makeup artist disguised Leverage. He's 29 years old, or was at the time. And they disguised him as an 84-year-old man with a receding hairline, white hair, deeply wrinkled skin, and wire rim glasses. And then he visited the famed Muscle Beach, just off the boardwalk in Venice Beach, California. Uh, you can see a video on YouTube by just entering the search words, Kenny Leverage, old man. He had the regular bodybuilders there, completely fooled and then totally stymied as he walked into the exercise area and and performed snatches and cleans and jerks and now, backflips and pistols. He, he even lifted 465 pounds doing a back squat. And in a priceless moment, he, he challenged a young shirtless bodybuilder to a snatch off and, and just blew him and, and the other bodybuilders and the spectators away by actually winning. And, the young bodybuilders there were just amazed and were asking him questions about how he stays in shape and, and how they might be able to guarantee that when they're 84 years old, they could be in that kind of condition. And he replied in his best old man voice, just keep on doing what you're doing. Just get stronger every day and drink lots and lots of prune juice. I wonder how many of you this morning like to work out. I suppose there are many of you who do, and, and your workout may range from walking to running to bicycling to aerobics to yoga to weightlifting. People today are involved in a lot of different workout kind of activities. Let me ask you this. When you work out, what is it that you're working out? I mean, have you ever thought about this? I mean, why don't why don't we talk about working in? When you work out, what is it that you're hoping will get worked out of your system? Think about that. This morning in this passage, we are considering in Philippians 2, Paul prescribes a workout for followers of Jesus Christ. And we're considering just two verses because these two are so packed. And we need to understand what Paul is saying here to the Philippian believers and to us today. So, Father, we just pray this morning that as we look into your word, that you would help us to understand it, that you would help us uh, to perceive what it is you're saying by your spirit to us. And then, Lord, that you would help us to obey. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians two twelve and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, 
So now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, we've been observing Paul's use of the word therefore, and and again, there's that word therefore at the start of verse 12. What's this therefore, therefore? Well, it points back to what Paul has said about Jesus in verses 9 to 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul says that God has exalted Jesus to the highest place, given him the name that is above every name, so that a day is coming. When every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so will uh, your your tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and, and so will mine. You might answer, not me. Uh, I'm not bowing or confessing. I don't even believe in Jesus. But what Paul is declaring here is that there are no distinctions in this case between believers and unbelievers. That on that day there will be universal acknowledgement of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Some will do so with joy and anticipation, but others will bow the knee and confess the Lordship of Jesus with deep regrets and sheer horror. But there's a therefore in verse 9 as well. What preceded the exaltation of Christ? And what we find in verses 5 to 8 is that Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In other words, before the exaltation came the emptying, came the incarnation, came the humbling, came the suffering and death. And Paul said to the Philippians, and he says to us today, the mindset that led the Son of God to descend from the glory of heaven to the humiliation of the cross, stands as the example and the standard for how we are to relate to one another within the family of God. Humbly considering others as more important than ourselves, looking not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. Uh, With all of that in mind... Paul continues, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What I want you to see this morning is, first of all, is the structure of this passage. 
There is in these two verses, first an implied promise, and then a prescription, and then a divine provision. And to get at the central message of this passage and and to frame this for us, let me tell you a story, a true story from the life of my family. Some of you who are baseball fans know the name of Ricky Henderson. Um, Over a 24-year major league career, Ricky played for 10 different teams, including a one-year stint with the Seattle Mariners. Ricky Henderson happens to hold the major league record uh, for stolen bases with 1,406 career stolen bases. He is, in fact, the only player in Major League history ever to reach the 1,000 mark. And then he went ahead and eclipsed it by another 406. And to demonstrate how unusual that is, um, the closest behind him is the Hall of Famer Lou Brock, who played for the St. Louis Cardinals, and he had 938 career stolen bases. So Ricky Henderson also still holds the Major League record uh, for career runs, for bases on balls, uh, for intentional walks and, and leadoff home runs. He won two World Series championships, uh, one in 1989 with the Oakland A's, and then again in 1993 with the Toronto Blue Jays. He was a, a 10-time All-Star. He won the Gold Glove and Silver Slugger Awards. He was inducted into the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame in 2009. Ricky was a pretty good, pretty big deal in the world of baseball. But that's just prologue to the story. See, in the year 2000, my son John was eight years old. And he was a huge fan of the Seattle Mariners and the game of baseball in general. And that year, Ricky Henderson came to Olympia. I read somewhere that he was doing an autograph signing at a car dealership in the Olympia Auto Mall. Did we have to go? Yes, we did. (laughs) So I took him out of school for a few hours that day. We went to the Auto Mall, and, and to prove it, we have a a picture of a smiling Ricky Henderson wearing his two World Series rings and a lot of other bling with his arm around my smiling son wearing his Mariners t-shirt. Well, I'm telling you this story to frame the message of Philippians 2, 12 to 13. I said that there is in this passage a promise, a prescription, and a provision. Let's wrap my son's story around this outline. First of all, there was a promise. And I'm going to embellish this for effect, so just use your imagination and go with me here. Imagine that I said to my son, John, if you will put on your Mariner's swag and go to the signing, Ricky Henderson will not only give you his autograph, but he'll invite you to his home for dinner. A promise of exaltation. A promise of future glory. Second, there was a prescription or a command that followed that. Son, get dressed in your mariner's gear and go to the signing. And you know what? If if that was all that I had said at that point, 
if I had prescribed an action that that he was, you know, first of all, made a promise and then prescribed an action that he was unable to fulfill on his own, my son would say, Dad, I'm only eight years old. I'm going to be in school and I can't drive a car. How am I going to be able to go to the signing? And that's where the provision comes in. I would say, and I did, son, your dad will make arrangements for you to be out of school for that time. And I will drive you to the auto mall for the signing and you'll meet Ricky Henderson. So again, the promise, go to the signing and Ricky Henderson will invite you to his home for dinner. The prescription, get dressed and go to the signing. And then the provision, because you can't do this on your own, your dad will make the arrangements and provide the transportation. Now let's see how these three elements, promise, prescription, and provision, work here in Philippians 2, verse 13, or 12 and 13. Let, so let's begin with the promise. You may be asking, um, where is the promise in these two verses? Um, I don't see one. I said earlier that's an, that it's an implied promise of exaltation, of future glory, and it's grounded in verses 9 through 11, the verses just before this. As Jesus is our example for how we are to relate to one another in humility, uh, his exaltation preceded ours. In a parallel passage, the Apostle Peter urged his readers, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. That's First Peter 5, 5 and 6. That at the proper time he may exalt you. See, the proper time will be the day of your death or the day that Christ returns for us, whichever comes first. And Paul described that day, that moment, in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And the Apostle John put it this way, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And see, though I embellished the promise in my son's story, there's there's no embellishment here. God's word repeats the promise over and over again in a number of ways. If we will humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, receive Jesus Christ as Savior, and submit to him as Lord now, 
then the promise is of future exaltation and future glory in the presence of the Lord Jesus. And then second comes the prescription. Paul's prescription is the central command in these two verses, which is work out, work out, work out your own salvation. He didn't say work for your salvation, but work out your salvation. See, there's nothing you or I could do or ever will do that will earn us God's favor. Salvation is a gift that, that God gives, only God gives, that can only be received by faith. And here's a dirty little secret that, that Paul shared in Romans chapter 3, verse 20. He said, no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. <laughs> really? No one can be made right with God by doing what the law commands? Then how come so many people try? Well, because we think that we can merit God's favor. And Paul says the law simply shows us how sinful we are. Part of what that means is that the harder you try to fulfill the requirements of God's law, the more you're going to experience and understand your utter inability to do it. And in another place, Paul said, for by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. See, here's another clarification. Paul said, work out your own salvation. Work out your own salvation. And this working out that Paul's talking about is a matter of individual personal responsibility, yours and mine. So what is Paul prescribing? What's he urging? The the Greek word that's translated work out here means to keep at something until it's brought to completion. And in this case, that something is your salvation. The command is given in the present tense. Keep on working out your own salvation. See, the Christian life is, is neither passive nor static. On the contrary, it's active and it's dynamic. And it's as if Paul is saying, look, don't stop halfway in your walk with God. Don't stop halfway in your pathway to growth and to maturity. Go on until the work of salvation is fully brought to completion in you. Until you come to full maturity in Christ. See, the Bible actually describes three tenses for our salvation. We usually only think of the first one. But the Bible says that we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. So there's salvation past tense, and that's the beginning of salvation, which the Bible calls justification. We've seen Ephesians 2.8 where Paul wrote, by grace you have been, past tense, saved by faith. We see this also in a verse like Romans 5.1 where Paul wrote, since we have been, past tense, justified by faith, we have, present tense, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, when I'm justified before God on the basis of faith, 
it's just as if I'd never sinned. All of my sin is forgiven. God declares me righteous on the basis of faith in his Son. And I'm reconciled to God. I'm at peace with God. And then there's salvation future tense. I am, or I will be saved. The the goal or the completion of our salvation, we will be saved, which the Bible speaks of as glorification. See, only God can glorify us. And he will do that one day in his presence. Peter wrote, though you, though you have not seen him, speaking of Jesus, you love him. Though you do not see him, now you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So salvation past tense, salvation future tense, and then there's salvation present tense. The Bible says we are being saved. And the Bible calls that sanctification. It's the, the in-between stage of our salvation. And this is the process that, that is going on right now in our lives if we are in Christ and as we work out our own salvation. Paul wrote that there are two kinds of people in the world. Those who are being saved and those who are perishing. Notice 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. When Paul wrote in Philippians 1 6, which, which we've seen in recent weeks, when he wrote, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He pointed to a beginning of God's good work in us. He anticipated an end of that good work at the day of Jesus Christ. And he implied an in-between process of bringing that good work to completion. And then there are three adverbial phrases that surround this prescription to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling that help us to understand in a fuller way what Paul had in mind. So let's look at each of them. The first is, as you have always obeyed, so now. And this obedience on the part of the Philippians is, is not to Paul, but to God. For each of us to, to work out our own salvation requires a, a humble, persistent quest for obedience to God. And this is the greatest struggle, isn't it, of the spiritual life. The second phrase is, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence. And we saw that word absence in chapter 1. Paul hoped to visit the Philippians again. And if he was able to do that, he he wanted to be able to contribute on that occasion to their progress and joy in the faith. But he also left open the possibility that his current absence from them might in fact become a permanent absence, whether because of prolonged imprisonment or even death. Whatever happened, he didn't want them to feel or 
think that their spiritual growth and their spiritual vitality was was ultimately dependent on him. He wanted their confidence to be in Christ, and, and he wanted them to learn to, to depend on the Spirit of God. And that's really the heart of a good pastor. A good pastor will, will never foster people's dependence on himself or try to make himself the center of anyone's spiritual life, but will instead lead people always into a deepening, dependent relationship with God, putting him at the center of their lives. The third phrase is, with fear and trembling. With fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And and it's the attitude we're to have as Christ followers as we pursue this goal. A, A healthy fear of grieving the heart of God by our disobedience. And a healthy reverence and awe toward God in recognition of who he is and in all of his majesty and in all of his holiness. It's not the trembling and fear of a slave, but it's the reverence of a son or a daughter. See, I think Paul wanted the Philippians to approach the matter of working out their salvation with fear and trembling because if if we are to grow up to maturity in Christ, it will require humility before God. Obedience to God. It will require serious, thoughtful attentiveness to living lives, living our lives in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Finally, we come to the third major element in this passage, which is God's provision in verse 13. And here's how he puts it. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You see, you and I can't do this working out alone. We can't do it by our own strength. We can't do it by our own wisdom, our own will, (laughs) our own sheer determination. So notice where he goes. Work out. There's the workout. Work out your salvation, for it is God who is working in you. Work out your salvation, for it is God who is working in you. Work out what God is working in. You know, I, I can't help it. Here's, here's a little true confession. Nearly every time I read verse 13, I, I'm reminded of a crazy summer song that was popular when I was in high school. It was titled Rubbin' In. Any of you remember that song? It was written and recorded in 1971 by an artist named Billy Crash Craddock. And it was written uh, from the perspective of a guy who's, who's laying in the sand on a beach with his girlfriend asking her to put some tanning lotion on his back. And he says to her, Lie beside me on the sand. Put some lotion in your hand. Come on and make me feel nice and kiss me once or twice. Say you love me again. And then rub it in. Rub it in. Rub it in. Rub it in. I feel the tingle begin. You're getting under my skin. Rub it in. Rub it in. Stay with me here. You think I've lost my mind. 
The reason I think of that song is that the, what I think Paul is saying is that God is rubbing it in. He's getting under our skin. He, he's, he's working into us everything that we need to live a life that, as he put it early, earlier, is worthy of the gospel of Christ, a life that is pleasing to God. God is working in you, Paul says, to do two things, to will, first of all, and secondly, to work for his good pleasure. I love the way the International Standard Version put this, for it is God who is producing in you both the desire and the ability to do what pleases him. See, God works in us the will or the desire to do what he wants, and also the power then, the enablement to do it. Neither of those things are things we have on our own. I mean, I, I don't always feel like doing God's will. I don't, I don't always have the desire, do you? And I never on my own have the power to do it. Our Heavenly Father knows that, and, and, and He provides the, both the desire and the power to us by His Holy Spirit who has taken up residence within us. The Holy Spirit is given to those who have trusted in what Christ accomplished on the cross, and so that, that power is, as John Piper put it, blood-bought power. Blood-bought power. Paul wrote to the Colossian Christians, we proclaim him, that is Jesus, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving, now listen to what he says, striving according to his power which mightily works within me. Apart from that power, we cannot do the things that God wants us to do. We can't live lives worthy of the gospel. We can't live lives that are pleasing to him. So Paul implies a promise, future glory, future exaltation with Christ in his presence. He gives a prescription, work out your own salvation. And then he points to the provision. God is at work in you, first to give you the desire to do what he wants, and then to give you the power to do it. And isn't that good news? that everything that God wants us to do, everything he wants us to be, he provides for. There's a parallel passage in Hebrews 3, verse 21, that gives us another angle on this truth, and I'm going to close with this. It's a benediction. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, there's the cross, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. 
See, understand this. As you struggle to work out your own salvation in this world in which we live, God provides the desire and the power, the resources, the enablement through Christ, by his blood, to live a life that is pleasing to him. The Lord bless you. Have a great week.